Hello, I'm Lyle Troxell, and this is Geekspeak. This episode of Geekspeak is actually a double posting from my other podcast called Lunch with Lyle, where I'm endeavoring to record an episode every day of the month of January 2022. And this episode was perfect for Geekspeak. So here it is, Quincy Larson, the founder and CEO of Free Code Camp. I hope you enjoy. This may sound weird and like extremely privileged, but I, I try to basically just spend most of my time in my own thoughts and limit the amount of input that I get because a lot of times if I'm thinking about current events or worrying about something like that, it, it can distract from my ability to just contemplate. Quincy Larson is the founder of Free Code Camp, and we'll get into that in a minute. Before that, he got a bachelor's in liberal arts um, in from Oklahoma, but during that time, spent time in China learning Mandarin and actually being an interpreter. Then became a teacher and then a software engineer and then started this amazing beast of a university, Free Code Camp. Started in 2014, and since then, over 40,000 graduates from the program have gone on to get high-paying tech jobs in companies like Microsoft, Google, and all that. And we could talk about the technical side of it, but I like the idea of talking about the education side of it. At the same time, I actually want to talk about what Quincy's like as an individual and how he deals with things in his life like stress and things like that. So Quincy Larson, thank you for joining me once again for an interview. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lyle. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a pleasure to listen to Geek Speak over the years and hear insights from you and like your very uh, thoughtful friends who really enjoy technology and diving deep into pretty much anything. There's no, there's no kind of like, I'm mildly interested in this. No, you, you're like very interested in whatever it is that's right in front of you, right? Yeah, I, that's always been my definition of a geek is someone who is unabashedly excited about something. And, and doesn't restrict their emotion or their interest to play a norm of what's appropriate or something. You know, we, we dive in. Yeah, and that, that would be my definition as well. That's a very positive definition of geek. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really easy to start talking about the tech space when we talk about Free Code Camp. But from a perspective of it just being an educational facility or educational or in, endeavor, kin to a university or something. But it has something that's quite different in the sense that it's like a trade school that, you know, when you're done, you're ready for the job, right? Lots of universities are more about like, let's give you a broad taste of world, some expertise, and then good luck when you've got into the world. This feels more like a trade school. Do, would that, is that how you classify it? Our goal is to help people get a job as quickly as possible. And everything we teach is with the practical perspective of like, okay, here's how this will help you ultimately earn a living and keep a roof over your children's head. You know, like like that that is the impetus. Like a lot of people think about Free Code Camp, oh, it's an educational, you know, website, but we're really I think we're more of like an economic development NGO. If that doesn't sound too overly grand, like we want people to be able to earn a living for themselves. We want them to be able to have interesting careers where they do interesting work where it feels fun, it feels exciting. Yes, you can make money doing things that are not particularly fun or exciting. But if you have the option of doing this where you're constantly learning, and that's what a developer is, they're, like, they're a learning machine, you're never going to use the same solution that you use or the same exact solution that you used previously because you could just reuse your old code. Code is infinitely reproducible. 
So by definition, you're always kind of on the cusp of the, you know, the, learning the horizon of your possible of your capabilities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I totally agree with you on that. And and it's it's an unusual space the the job of being a software engineer in the sense that when you do get a job, you know, the starting salary is probably across the U.S. or what, 100,000 a year, something like that. Maybe it's a little bit less, a little bit more, depending on the where. Um, but it's a pretty serious chunk of change you can get from getting one of these tech jobs. And you've helped, like your free project has helped like 40,000 people do that transition from whatever they were doing before into a more serious role of engineering and probably a, a job that allows them to buy a house. Like it, that's why it's kind of an economic development project. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a hundred thousand dollars, like obviously if you're in the Bay area, <laughs> that, I think that that's viable, but uh, my first developer job was not even close to that. And I, I think probably like, you know, even 60, 70,000 is like a really good yeah. wage for like, if you're, if you're out in like Florida or if you're here in Texas or something like that, I think that that's, Absolutely. It's perfectly reasonable. The The important distinction is like a lot of teachers make $30,000, $40,000 a year. Right. A lot of, uh, you know, truck drivers, people in the service industry might make $25,000 a year, you know? Um, so, so it, it can be a significant increase in earnings. And, uh, a lot of times it's not just that, but it's also like a totally different lifestyle. Uh, if, you know, when I was younger, I worked at Taco Bell, I worked there for like two years and, my manager would just call me and say, Hey, we need you to come in, <laughs> you know? And I would have to physically get in, uh, get in a car and drive to Taco Bell and, and get my uniform in and go in and like work for eight hours whenever he called me, you know, maybe I just woken up, maybe it was the middle of the night, you know, and they just needed somebody to run the drive through. I didn't have a lot of say in, in that matter. And as a result, because it was my job, I had to drop whatever I was doing with software engineering. A lot of things, unless you're in like, DevOps or something where you're having like these big fires and stuff. A lot of it is like, Hey, I work Monday through Friday, or I like to work later in the evening. I'm more of a nighttime person. That's fine. And, and the great thing is not just the, uh, you know, being, being able to work remotely is, you know, profound in the sense that it saves a huge amount of time. And like, I have the luxury of working with in the same house with my kids. I can go and see my kids, you know, right now they're napping. But uh, I can see them when they wake up and I can take them to the park and stuff. And it's not like I, I'm not spending a huge amount of time commuting to and from work. And uh, then the asynchronous aspect of it, the fact that like if I get sick, you know, nobody's going to freak out. I'll just make up the time, you know, later this week or something. I'll, I'll get the project done a little bit later. The amount of being able to like work as an adult instead of just being perceived as like, you know, an input <laughs> in like a larger process. Like you're the guy who takes the orders at the drive through and then they go to this person and they assemble the burritos. And then this person is at the, you know, register and they take the money, you know, and hand the people the burritos and fill up their sodas. It's just interesting because first of all, you're doing interesting work all the time, but you also have this luxury, not just of money. And again, in software engineering, it's one of the most remunerative roles you can have. Like, yeah. Even even compared to like roles where you're working specifically to make money, like if you're in sales or something, right? Like you don't go in sales because you enjoy doing sales. Maybe some people do, but but it pays, right? It's yeah. it's it's a high earning field in software engineering. Even though people go into it because they're interested in technology or they're interested in you know systems, it still pays really well. So yeah. so it, it is kind of like a sweet spot in so many ways. I really do think that this is like one of the best 
knowledge worker type jobs. Uh, and it's hopefully it's a harbinger of the jobs to come later in the 21st century. I've got high school age kids who are just out of college and stuff, and I'm looking at their what's the next step to try to find their life. And I think a lot of people have this this thought process of, well, is the university space the right space to go? I mean, I worked in the university space for like 11 years, and I have really good friends that are professors, and I'm very invested in you know liberal education. I think it, you get a lot out of it. And if your goal is to start having a salary and taking care of yourself, doing something like free code camp and actually learning tech skill, you know, programming skills and engineering skills right out of high school, I don't see a benefit from a pulling in money thing to going to a four-year university and getting like a CS degree, a computer science degree. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I would never discourage somebody from going and getting a, a four-year degree, uh, specifically a CS degree. Uh, if you're going to get a degree, like I would definitely recommend that degree specifically over getting like a business administration degree or a liberal arts degree, which is what I got. Uh, there's nothing wrong with getting those degrees. It's just that to some extent going to university in 2022, I mean, it's, it's about checking a box that most employers are going to have on their, you know, in their software that they're using to filter through candidates. Like, are they a university degree or graduate, you know, and they may not even say it, but it may just be taken for granted. Like, People aren't going to be applying for this role if they don't have a degree. But in reality, like only like a third of people in the U.S. have a degree. And uh, what about all the other people that didn't, you know? I don't have it, a degree. Okay. And I'm yeah. a senior software engineer, Netflix. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So so I think the, the thing is like you've got companies that I think are more progressive in this uh, manner like – specifically tech companies like the big tech companies have come out and publicly said like, Hey, you know, university degrees are not required anymore. It's just like one of many different considerations in a candidate. I wouldn't discourage people from going to university just because it is so entrenched socially. And to some extent, I think the fact that universities are so entrenched socially in the sense that like, if you want to go in the military, you have to have a degree. Otherwise you'll never, there's like a very low glass ceiling and you'll be able to see all those people that are officers and did go to university. And those are going to be your bosses. And it, it makes sense, I guess, if, if you have like a giant organization, you don't want to get into the extremely granular thing of like considering candidates. You just want to have a checklist. OK. Yeah. Um, it's also for getting a work visa. Like if you want to go and like I, when I went, went to, to China to, to uh, work, you know, you have to have a degree right it's like one of the considerations oh you, you don't have a degree you're not like and and in the u.s we're like more cool about it but in a lot of places in the world it's like if you don't have a degree it's, you're just like kind of a second class citizen i think that's true in the u.s too i mean I wouldn't say second class citizen but it definitely represents like you're saying the boundary of entry into a lot of fields it still does have an effect. Yeah, and, and I apologize if I'm misusing the term second-class citizen because I know that it, it has literal, like, historic connotations. Sure, sure. But but what I'm trying to say is you're just kind of shut out uh, of a lot of conversations and a lot of rooms that you would potentially be able to go in. And I believe that all this can be very easily overcome. If you've worked as a software engineer at Netflix for a few years, nobody's going to ask you what you're like, oh, what did you study in school? Like, it, it becomes almost like a joke. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, it's I didn't really ever go to school. I struggled so long to be a software engineer. And then when I got the job at Netflix, I was like, I got to update my resume. I'm like, wait, oh, I don't have to worry about that ever again. Like, I don't need a resume. I don't. It, it's this weird scenario where it's like, I'm not actually moving up tiers anymore at this point. Now it's just more like what I want to do. 
fascinating. But you were saying, I'm sorry, interrupt. And like the thing is, once you get your first software engineering job, that's like the hardest job application you're ever going to do. Assuming you don't completely, you know, botch it, uh, you're going to, people are going to be approaching you saying like, Hey, would you like to work for our company and stuff? And from then on, you're kind of like in a seller's market for skills to a large extent, like getting a degree is just about helping you get that first job. If you can get that first job without getting a degree, like I would never tell somebody who's already been working for a while, like, Oh, you should go back to school and get a degree. Like, I just don't give people that advice because I don't, I no longer believe that it's good advice. I school was not really designed. I realized there's like night school and stuff and people do go back to finish their degree. And sometimes you'll hear these really inspiring stories about somebody who just resolved to get a degree, even though they were like 80 years old, they decided to go through it. And that's cool. I, I do not mean to downplay the accomplishment associated with that. And I do not mean to discourage anybody from going back and doing that. But I would not tell somebody who's like 30 years old, who has kids, who has a mortgage, who's working a job like, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to drop everything for four years and go get a degree. No, I wouldn't give them that advice, right? (laughs) Yeah. So with all this, there's also going to university is not about getting a job. Going to university is about being able to be a more fulfilled and broader brain, (laughs) an experience of living. And and when I talk, when speaking with you over the years, it's clear that you have a broader understanding of the world and how people work and motivations and, and thoughts about how things should be. Like being aware that second class citizen is not an appropriate term to use because there's actually a historic definition of that. Kind of just even being aware of that means that you're putting yourself in the broader cont- context of history and of the world, which is kind of what a liberal education is about, is kind of growing that sense. You wouldn't be the person you were, you are without having your undergraduate experience, right? I think that everybody you ask that says like, oh, you know, you don't need to go to college. Like if they went to college themselves, they're not really qualified to give a statement on that because, yeah, it's it's difficult to tease out what I learned from just reading books by myself at the library uh, and what I learned from university lectures. I will tell you this. I am optimistic that like if you just read like the New York Times or The Economist or, uh, you know, the Financial Times or, gosh, uh, The Guardian. You know, like if you just sat down and you read these every single day for like four or five years, you would probably have about the same amount of context as to how the world works that you would get if you got a, if you went to like a university degree. Program. Like, granted, if you're if you get like a degree in a specific skill, like I'm going to study uh, specifically bioinformatics, bioinformatics. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> exactly. you're going to learn a lot of domain specific stuff, Yeah, but like the general education requirements and stuff, uh, like people have to take a bunch of time, like in humanities, they have to take a bunch of time, uh, studying like history and things like that. It's not like universities have a monopoly on teaching you how those things work. And I say this as somebody who had like no formal background in computer science and was 31 years old and got to the point where I could read academic papers on computer science and and understand like a lot of the algorithms and stuff. Now, don't put me in front of a whiteboard and ask me to like invert a binary search tree or anything, <laughs> but you can do that, right? And and I would argue you could do like if you if you made up your mind, "Hey, I want to learn about geography. I want to learn about like um economics and and like why, you know, so many big cities are situated right by the sea." You know, like all those kind of aspects of geography. You could just go watch the Geography Now channel, you know, and spend 
hundreds of hours watching YouTube, reading articles, uh, listening to podcasts, like you could very rapidly come up to speed with the general, like it's, it's kind of like the 80, 20 thing, right? Like yeah. you can get 80% of the value just from kind of like absorbing things being part of the meta. Right. And, and then if you want to get that last 20%, maybe you have to go get a PhD. Right. You know, I think that this comes down, this, this is actually part of also, um, what is the university experience for, for even for a uh, study or what is code camp for free code camp for with regards to like all these resources out there, you could do it yourself, but there's something very magical about curriculum that's designed for the process of growth. If you don't have that, if you, if you do just kind of start reading papers, it's very hard to jump into some paper without going, Oh, I don't know what this idea is. And then you jump back and then you jump back and pretty soon you're like trying to find foundational stuff rather than someone curating it, an expert curating this stuff saying, here is a path to learn it from small principles to larger principles. That curation process, that curriculum definition is the core piece, I think, especially for complicated things like software engineering. And that's actually how free code camp is structured, right? There's different paths of curriculum that you start from a never have no experience point to full development. Was that crucial in the early beginning or is it early just any, anybody could share anything? Yeah, so the core curriculum, we, we have tons of extracurricular resources. We've got about 8,000 books and detailed tutorial articles that we that the community has written and we've edited and published over the years. We also have about 800 full-length like full-length courses that you would maybe traditionally see on like a course platform or something. We put those freely available on YouTube. Some of those are 2 hours long, some of those are 20 hours long, and they often have like GitHub repos that you can clone and code along at home and things like that. This means all the stuff you write, there's samples of that you can you can yep. get and see it and participate in it. Go on. Yeah, so, so those are the extracurricular resources, but we also have an interactive core curriculum. And I think that's what most people think of when they think of free code camp. And that is very linear. It starts with front end development and then it goes to back end development and then it goes to scientific computing and data science. Um, and that progression is very intentional because it's easier to get a job in front-end development than it is to get a job as like a full-stack developer or a back-end developer generally. And there are more job opportunities in general in front-end development uh, in my experience. So it's just about where, where it's easy to get people. It's just about the practical of people getting people hired? Or is there something else about starting with front-end? There, there's, there's more. There's a very uh, fortuitous kind of overlap. Like another reason why is when you start at the front-end and you change like an HTML element or you change some CSS or you write some JavaScript and it like causes a button to light, light up or something. Like there's some visual aspect to it too. So it feels a little bit more fun and the feedback loop feels a little tighter than when you're doing something more abstract. Like, okay, let's get the API up. Okay, 200 right. okay. What does that mean? You know, like, like you can see that the penguin now has eyes. Before the penguin didn't have eyes, right? You added the right. eyes there. It, it's just like a, it just feels more motivational to be building a penguin or styling a nutrition label or something like that. The, you know, the Quincy, the funny thing is, is that that's exactly opposite of how computer science is taught in the university setting. In the university setting, you sit down first with base principles of like how the machine works. Then you talk about data structures, all this stuff that has nothing to do with software engineering, um, programming. And eventually, maybe you'll get some information about you know, front-end development. Now, I'm sure that's changing a little bit, but the computer science path is that way. I'm doing a whole series of covering my friend Warren Sachs' book about, called The Software Arts, available from MIT Press on GeekSpeak. And he's very much talking about why is it set in the sciences versus in the creative field. 
Do you think software development is science or art? So I think that there's a reason why computer science departments have historically been kind of housed in like the math departments. A lot of computer science is really just applied math. That said, you can go really deep. You can do a lot of research. You can you can come up with these beautiful data structures and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it, it, it is very much like more engineering than it is science for most people, <laughs> right? Like there are I mean, only so many PhD, yeah. you know, or there are only so many, you know, tenure track computer science professor jobs. There are only so many jobs at CERN where you're like thinking very hard about how to like, you know, process data, you know, when real time, you know, if you're working with like particle physics, they can't actually store all the data. There's so much data that comes out of like the large Hadron Collider. And yeah, there are probably a few thousand people who work as computer scientists, right? But there are (laughs) millions of people who work as software engineers. And those people, for those people, it is very much like a, okay, I need to grab this tool off the shelf. I need to plug it in here. I need to make sure it works properly and does what I need it to do. And then I need to keep building out this massive, you know, thing over here. <laughs> and yeah. and I don't think there's a lot of thought into like, oh, I wonder uh, what the time complexity of this operation that I just coded right, right, right. here is, right? I, I don't think that that comes up as much. Maybe you could argue that like software engineering, there, there's that quote, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, if we build buildings the way that we build software, the first woodpecker would herald the end of civilization <laughs> because software engineering really is like engineering Very like fragile. with air quotes around the engineering part. <laughs> you know, when you were saying that um, computer science is kind of engineering, software engineering, software development, whatever, is kind of applied mathematics. I think of that as, yeah, and oil painting is applied chemistry. It's Sure, it's important. Like, if you want to have color paintings, you better have really good chemists involved in what you're doing. But when it comes down to what you're doing, you're never thinking about chemistry when you're painting an oil painting. It's, it's, of course, it's hard to judge this because as software engineers, we inherently have some knowledge in us. So we don't, we're not aware that having that, how much having that knowledge is actually benefiting our ability to program, right? So that's valid. But in any case, I'm, I'm really excited for free code camps focus on seeing quick positive feedback loops. I did a lot of talking with professors about teaching uh, software and technology and electronics to um, artists. And that was always kind of the problem is that all the curriculums are like, okay, let's learn how a variable is and let's learn what a linked list is. And let's, you know, these do these things that are so removed from the actual process of seeing the interfaces that we all use every day that I'm glad you've, it's structured the direction. It seems to be working. Like that's a lot of people that have gone through your program. And the other thing about it being free is just mind-blowing. Okay, now that we've talked about all that, do you feel like a successful person? Uh, I, I feel like if I were to die tomorrow, which hopefully won't happen, hopefully I'll still be able to live to work on free cooking for another 40 years and see my kids grow a little older. But I, I do feel like, like I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, oh man, like full of whist. <laughs> right if, if, if i were like i i'm at a place where i'm comfortable that like i feel like i'm worth the oxygen i'm sucking down so to speak uh mm-hmm. because because for a long time i did feel like oh okay like you know have i really done anything that's been helpful to people have i have i served and uh, you know i i feel like there's a lot that that 
I see all these problems and I want to help solve them. And I feel like my work is just beginning. But at the same time, I, I do feel somewhat, I don't feel complacent. I don't want you to get that vibe. But like, oh, Quincy's like, he's done. He's checked out. He's already, he's already uh, made his impact. And now he can just sit back and watch other people do the work. No, like uh, I, I very much want to keep pushing, but, it, but I don't beat myself up like I used to. That's, that's great. Are you still motivated? Are you still doing new things for yourself? Are you still pushing your, your learning and all that? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, not as much stuff in the software engineering space because, like, even though I did build FreeCodeCamp's original code base, and I think I still have the most commits on it, um, most of what I do now is like trying to like around sustainability, trying to get organizations to give grants to FreeCodeCamp, for example, or um, trying to meet with potential uh, course like people who would create courses or people would help localize FreeCodeCamp into other world languages. That's one of the biggest things going on right, right now with FreeCodeCamp is just we're trying to make FreeCodeCamp as accessible to speakers of other languages as it is in English. Um, so virtually all the people we've hired over the past year have been uh, to help with localization. But myself, like uh, when the pan- pandemic started, I spent a huge amount of time, thousands of hours learning about music and composition. And that was something that I'd always loved consuming music but i'd never really produced it it was kind of like going back like when i was 31 i'd always loved consuming technology but i never thought i could produce it well yeah same thing with music in in uh i guess 2020 uh is when i when i started like learning composition and and learning how to play some instruments and stuff so i'm trying to keep the neuroplasticity up and uh <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun i mean it's just become all-consuming. When I'm when I'm not taking care of my kids, when I'm not working on Freeco Camp, you know, I'm hunched over a keyboard, like a MIDI keyboard or MIDI controller, or, or trying to capture good bass and uh, write some songs, some jazz. Do you have hard days? Not really. That, so I'm not trying to be boastful, but I've got a lot of systems in place, and one of my systems is, you know, delegate, automate. And then you can concentrate. And that, that has been a big profound revelation to me is that if I have systems in place, things can be getting done and I can just be sitting in a room thinking very hard. And ideally, there's somebody who will, like, like for example, a few hours ago, we had some intermittent outages with one of our servers, like the, the publication server. And it was very relaxing and you know peaceful to, to be able to realize, okay, this is happening right now. We're in the middle of our all hands meeting. Like, Margesh is taking care of that. Like, me freaking out, me, like, there's nothing I'm going to do. I'm not going to SSH into the server and like try to tail the logs and stuff, right? Margesh has that covered. Just little things like that, right? Like, having systems in place, uh, having routines, going to bed at the same exact time, waking up at the exact same time, eating the exact same breakfast every day, wearing the same clothes. Every day is the same. I don't even the weekends. Like I don't I don't change anything on the weekends. I work about six hours a day every day, which if you do the math, that's like forty two hours. That's not that's sustainable. And reality is like sixty hours. But but like <laughs> I try to get it as close to forty hours a week as I can. And then every day, without fail, around four o'clock here in Dallas time, I take my kids and we walk over to the park and we just relax for like an hour. And then we come back and we eat. We put the kids to bed and then I do like a second shift. So so every day is exactly the same and I live in these like kind of day tight capsules. And uh, as a result, 
yeah, I feel like I'm just kind of floating through my day. With, but you lose out on a lot of stuff. You lose out on a lot of the variability. Obviously, with the pandemic, this has not like the pandemic didn't affect me nearly as much. Other than, of course, like we had, you know, people that got sick, people that died, and our family and stuff like that. But but aside from that, me personally, I would probably just be a homebody, basically doing all this stuff anyway. So so I feel like that that has been extremely helpful to my productivity. Just having everything be very consistent throughout and to the extent that I can project my consciousness into something else rather than like this physical corporeal form and like how all these, you know, bodily needs and like all these other things like that, like just to have that all kind of taken care of. So regardless of what I'm doing, it's so routine that I can be thinking about whatever the task at hand is. Do you know who came up with the idea delegate, automate and concentrate? I did. I don't you know did. if that's okay. useful, but but like, I was like, I need to write <laughs> a book. Interesting. Like, if I wrote a book, what would I call it? You know, it was like like one of those airport books that you get when you forgot your. Uh, I don't know if people. I guess have phones. I I still see people like last time I flew, which was like two or three years ago. Uh, I saw somebody with a book, and like I was like, oh wow, people still read books. So uh, yeah, I was like, maybe I'll write a book sometime. But do you not read much? I read all the time, but I generally I read it like in. Uh, you know, EPUB format or something like that. What kind of stuff are you reading? Uh, virtually, like, I actually don't read very many books, book books. I do occasionally. Um, but most of what I read is, like, I just read lots of articles, Atlantic or BBC or where whatever, like, people send me. Like, I've got lots of friends on Signal who will just, like, send me, like, you should read this, right? And a lot of times it'll just be, like, whatever's at the top of Hacker News that day. But uh, or or Reddit, you know stuff like that. But I try not to actually use those platforms to get my news. I try to like wait for people to send stuff to me, um, just because Why? then then I'm like, oh well, if it was important to this person, then it's probably going to be worth my time. So kind of relying on other people to do the curation. You can rely on the the crowds, uh, the the people on Hacker News, the people on Reddit to like upvote, like oh this is worth your attention. But I found that like a lot of times it's not worth my attention. And I try to like, this may sound like weird and like extremely privileged, but I I try to basically just spend most of my time in my own thoughts and limit the amount of input that I get. Because a lot of times if I'm thinking about current events or worrying about something like that, it, it can distract from my ability to just contemplate the current systems that are in place that like within FreeCodeCamp. So I'm just constantly iterating on the like, okay, why are we doing this? You know, what's what's the underlying reasoning behind this? And like, okay, what are we going to do about this? And like, just I spend a lot of time by myself, just in my text editor, hours a week, just like typing things out, and then I just close the file and d- delete everything, right? Because the the text editor was just there as a, a way for me to dump my brain and get it into a text format and kind of organize it into like a little mini essay, and then boom, I can delete it. And I've got some additional clarity. Wow, fascinating! It's kind of like talking to yourself, but in a more structured way. Yeah, and you and t- so a lot of times, if you've got like a co-founder, or if you've got like a bunch of really smart people that you hang out with and stuff, if you've got a podcast where you just interview smart people all the time, uh, not that I'm smart, but like a lot of the people on Geekspeak are genuinely like, you know, like like wow, they they clearly think very deeply about things. But if you have all those things, maybe you don't need to talk to yourself all the time. But like talking to yourself is the ultimate echo chamber. 
but you don't have to worry about trusting people. You don't have to worry about people judging you based on your thoughts. I mean, you, you can entertain the most absurd notions in your head and not be called out by anybody because the only person to be called to do the calling out is yourself. And yes, sometimes I'll call myself out like that's such a dumb idea. What are you thinking? You know, but, but ultimately <laughs> this is a solitary journey. There's that saying like good help is hard to find. If you, if you want something done, do it yourself. Right. Like kind of radical self-reliance kind of extends into like self-hosting and, and like, you know, free camp. We're not paranoid per se, but uh, we do want to like control our own infrastructure and not be beholden to big platforms and things like that to yeah. the extent possible. And a lot of that comes back to like, you can trust yourself when, when all else has failed, you can trust yourself and hopefully you can trust your family and stuff, but it's kind of an imposition. If like, I just were to like start peppering my wife with like random business ideas all day. She would probably get really tired of it really quick. And she might, she might just be like, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. You know, sounds great. You know, just because Whatever works she, for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I've got like bad feedback that like, Oh, maybe this yeah. is a great idea. Right. Why don't you take those ideas and like share them with other, with colleagues and stuff? Why, why erase them? Is it because you've now come to a conclusion of what you're going to do next and you, that's the thing that was important? Yeah, I, I don't like to like involve people in the implementation details and like all the messy. Like, first of all, if I like say something that sounds smart, I've probably said it or written down like a hundred times to get it to actually sound smart. Like the process of actually arriving at something that's worth sharing with people, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm always apprehensive about coming on to a podcast. Is like, man, I'm just gonna ramble and sound like a silly person for like, <laughs> you know, however long they give me. It is very therapeutic to like come out here and talk. And I hope it's useful to you. I, and I, I hope it's useful. I to found a few things that are really interesting. I, I definitely like the idea that you don't want to be distracted from your own thoughts. You want to have time to think like that to me, that's definitely come out of this podcast series I'm doing where it really is clear that that's probably one of the major reasons why we don't have better educated conversations about things is because everybody's just listening and consuming and regurgitating and not spending time to form their own opinions. Earlier in your career, like we'll be right after you became a software engineer after, after teaching and such, and you became a software engineer, you were saying that at that time you did have some kind of like, what have I done for the world perspective, some, some judgment on what you were doing. Um, and that voice has kind of gone away. Why doesn't that allow you to stop? Like for me, it feels like sometimes that pestering of like, what are you doing? How are you helping is an important thing for me to get things done. But you're, kind of concluded that you're doing okay in helping others. So why keep doing it? Well, it's just my own personal, you know, selfish ego, not, not wanting to hate myself as much <laughs> as I certainly did when I was younger. Right. Um, you know, I'm on a mission. I, I do believe that I have a purpose and that, that um, my understanding of that purpose is that I should help improve the price performance of education in this country. Right. And, and potentially make the high quality education that we at least once took for granted. Now, now it's very expensive. But, but like the, that education, like the, those free learning, re, like those learning resources to make them as inexpensive as possible or ideally free and get them in the hands of as many people as possible. So to some extent, like things aren't going to improve on their own. And if you don't trust society to like make a decision and actually get things done. If you don't trust other people to actually get the things done, you, you, you have to do it yourself. Like if there's one, 
theme that's run through my entire life. It's like, I can't rely on other people to fix education. I need to fix it myself. And if I do rely on other people and it doesn't get fixed, I have nobody to blame but myself for not getting fixed because I could have done something. To some extent, it's like an outrage at the student debt in this country. It's crippling the livelihoods, the plans of generations of Americans. It's outrageous to me that there are these places in the world that have these autocratic regimes that are essentially not providing, not, not carrying out like the social contract between the government and the governed and providing them with education, even when it's pretty inexpensive to do. It's just like outrage and anger that propels me to continue to try to make free learning resources and hopefully inspire other people to do it. Uh, you know, like my philosophy is like things should only get cheaper. There's no reason. Technology is a forcing mechanism to drive down the costs of everything, right? And it's driven down the costs of so many things, right? Uh, but it has not sufficiently driven down the cost of education. And to me, that's unfortunate because education is the ultimate input if you want to have economic growth, if you want to have prosperity, if you want to have people who treat each other with dignity, right? They need to learn. They need to be thoughtful people. They need to kindness. You know, these things come from thinking and from learning. The natural state of humans is not necessarily as as nice as we need it to be, right? Like there's, there's no reason that we ever need to have another war if we were smart enough to just negotiate, right? And, and figure out ways that we can, we can essentially trade, right? Um, and the fact that we still have all these wars, the, the fact that we still have people who are working in textile factories uh, in conditions that are not that different from what we had 100 years ago is frustrating to me. The fact that we have people that are doing subsistence agriculture in some countries when in the United States, agriculture is almost completely automated and it's incredibly productive, but that's like literally all they can do to survive is subsistence agriculture because they have not been afforded the opportunities to do more with their lives. It's frustrating for me. And I say that as an incredibly you know, privileged dude who grew up in with a U.S. passport, you know, a white male American, right? Uh, it still is very, very irritating, like... And I want to do what I can to help other people. Uh, and yeah. I feel like if I were to just hand over a free code camp to somebody else to run, I think most likely they wouldn't do as good a job as me. <laughs> maybe that's just because I can't get you know myself out of the way and like, oh, maybe it would be better for free code camp if we go, brought in this professional CEO like like they did with all these other big tech you know organizations and stuff. I don't believe that for a second, man. I think that the the founder of an organization should never relinquish control of that organization and uh, that they will almost always be better served by not bringing in the John Scully character who's ultimately going to, you know, run the place into the ground and fire you, right? Like, uh, so, yeah, uh, sorry, that's like a really long way to the answer. But, but yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I say this with a smile on my face, but is this the best humanity can do? So much of human progress is just a few people thinking really hard for a little bit and coming up with something that works better. And then a whole lot of busy work around finally adopting that thing. And then once it's adopted, then like, Hey, things are a lot better. Like think about radio waves. Think about what a freaking breakthrough radio waves were. Right. 
And somebody just had to sit down and figure out, oh, radio waves. Yeah, we can we can use this like this. I think there are probably hundreds of things like radio waves that have yet to be discovered that may enable us to travel faster than light, that may enable us to transmute matter into whatever we need it to be. Like, who knows what kind of discoveries are out there? And how do you accelerate the rate at which we get those discoveries? We educate people, right? We, we make learning yeah. abundant. We make it better. We make it fun. Well, so one of the things I'm curious about, the reason why you're doing what you're doing has to do with wanting to make the world better for people. In your curriculum in Free Code Camp, do you have an ethics chunk of stuff in there? Do you have some idea of the why? Is that taught to the students or is it surface to them? Because in software development, we have a problem with people working on unethical things. It's hard to teach ethics interactively and everything we want to do is teach interactively in the code editor. Yes, we do have some ethics related courses um, on YouTube and things like that. Our core curriculum doesn't touch on ethics. A part of ethics, a part of that is, you know, ethics vary from culture to culture. And that may seem like a cop-out, but, you know, facial recognition in the hands of a company that just wants to figure out how to unlock your phone is very different from facial recognition in the hands of an authoritarian government, right? Um, There are not necessarily, like, tech, I don't believe tech is neutral. I believe that, um, you know, when we teach security research, it's possible that there are some, you know, state-level actors that take those learning resources and use them to perpetrate hacks. That, that's just something I've come to accept is, like, when you're creating learning resources, you know, India blocked GitHub for a while because people were using those resources, uh, you know, for terrorism. Knowledge is power and dangerous. Yeah. So I would be extremely sad if I learned of a specific instance where Somebody learned something on Free Code Camp and then turned around and used it to harm people. It's dependent on what you think of harm is and how they use it. I mean, we have, I'm sure people have left Free Code Camp and went to work at Facebook. And I think Facebook's doing some pretty serious harm right now. And I also know that people that are there are not bad people. There's a, it's complicated. It's definitely challenging. We don't have to go into that space right now. But I do, I have another question for you. It feels like Free Code Camp, this self-guided, you can go through this curriculum on your own interactively and for free. All of these amazing things. And at the end of that, you can get a job that actually pays better than a lot of other jobs in the United States, right? That is just a great mix. Can you do that for some other discipline? Can you do that for some other education? Can this be done for anything? Or is it specifically just work because it's software? Yeah, so we are doing it for mathematics. We are doing it for kind of business English, if you will. I think it's useful. It it could definitely be useful to an extent in like the, the hard sciences, anything where you can have a, like a deterministic guess or no answer, a right or wrong answer where you can have a test suite. It's less useful in like literary critique, for example, or, um, you know, law, <laughs> uh, you know, things where there's a lot of interpretation and there's a lot of, uh, it, it's hard to arrive at like, like, I guess, yeah, if it's a subjective thing, then, Sorry, automated software is probably not going to be as helpful. It may be helpful for some aspects of it. You're, you're saying something so fundamentally problematic with our world right now and technology. It's hard to use software to learn these things about subjective qualities or about law. And yet we're codifying all our law in software right now. That's what we're doing in society. We're transforming everything into the computer. But 
when you try to do that to learn these things, you can't, which means that they're probably not doing it correctly. Like these implementations are probably wrong at a fundamental level. Yeah. And my, my hope is that humans acknowledge the limits of software. You know, software is not a panacea. It's not going to save us from ourselves. I don't believe that an administration run by software would be superior to one with human involvement. Um, and and you, you, yes, the best human chess player cannot necessarily beat the best computer, but that is an extremely limited game where there's like no element of luck. To my knowledge, there's no like outside, you know, considerations outside of just the very basic rules. It also depends on how you define that. If you and I were to play a chess game, the experience of it would be maybe getting in the same physical place, sitting down in a chair, moving the pieces, setting them up, setting up the board. Computer can't do any of that stuff, even though that is actually the experience of a human playing human being playing chess. So it, it's because we limit these boundaries to say they're successful here. Well, but that's not really the experience that we're we're making. Like a chess player is the best computer chess player there is. Okay, <laughs> I'm a human. I can also dance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. There was that that famous scene in the thing when the 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 computer game beats him and he just takes the coffee and dumps it on the computer and shorts it out. Right. Right. Like, it's like <laughs> and, and I do believe yeah. that that's like a, a profound, like, I mean, this is a, you know, schlocky horror movie. Right. But, but it's, it's a profound statement. Like when I saw it, I was like, yeah, you're right. Like these machines can only do things that they're programmed to do. And yes, they, we, they can do machine learning things that we don't truly understand. That is potentially problematic. Um, if, if, Computers are making decisions. We don't understand why they're making the decisions they are. I don't want you to think that I'm some sort of Luddite that, that uh, you know, back in my day, we had like 12 human beings that sat down and decided whether we should kill the person. You know, um, I don't I don't want you to think that that's like, I think that there, technology can be applied in a lot of places. And it may be that, you know, self-driving cars dramatically reduce casualties on the road. And maybe we can get it to acceptable limits where like, yeah, there are like things that, corner cases we never planned and yes some people are going to die but it's going to be a tiny fraction of the people who would die but at the same time there's going to be a tendency a pressure to get things into production before they're ready to ship yep. <laughs> right um and the cure for optimism is feedback and we just need to we need to make sure that we're getting tons of feedback and yes we we need to talk about technology ethics we, this needs to be something that everybody talks about and if we can figure out an interactive way to like have like an ethics course uh, where you're actually like in a code editor and you're reading like a sentence at a time and then you're coding something, we would add that to the curriculum in a heartbeat. The main thing is like I've been thinking about that problem for seven years and I haven't and, – and FreeCode can – we really do want the curriculum to be in, totally interactive. We don't ever want you to have to stop and read a big passage of text or watch a video lecture. And if you try – if you haven't tried FreeCodeCamp – Go there and try the new responsive web design. It's you have to scroll to the bottom. It's in beta. It'll be in not beta, hopefully in a few weeks, and it'll just replace the current one. I hope you'll try it and appreciate the level of granularity and thought that went into every single word, like not a word out of place. That's that's really what we're going for. An extremely refined path uh, through first HTML and then CSS and then JavaScript and Node.js and SQL, all that stuff, right? Like, like we really want to make it as graceful as possible and get you into a flow state where you genuinely sit down and the, you know, the clock mounts off the wall. 
and you had no idea that, but you just learned a tremendous amount. You learn more in that one sitting than you'd ever learned about programming in your life. That's what we're trying to achieve. If you want to try this, you can go to freecodecamp.org, click on uh, curriculum on the menu, go to that one he's talking about, the beta one at the very end, which is uh, responsive web design beta. And then when you go in there, there'll be a, a page with some text and there'll be collapsed courses, like a whole bunch of numbered ones. Just push the first one, like the number one, and just start going through it. It's it really does guide you through. It's kind of amazing. And you don't have to have any computer science experience. I just was trying it as you were talking about it. And I, I got a little lost. I'm like, what was I supposed to do? And then when I finally pushed the one, I'm like, oh, I now jumped into an editor and kind of an example of what's going to happen. It is pretty cool. So I think that similarly, English could probably be taught the same way. Like we assume you have high school English and you can learn English in English. Um, and we can, we can introduce like some advanced syntax. We can introduce advanced usage patterns, things like that. I think math could be taught the same way. We're doing math education in Jupyter Notebook. We're trying to teach all of university level engineering mathematics. So, you know, that'd be everything from like remedial math, uh, algebra, linear algebra, uh, calculus, statistics. Those courses are there now? It's not up there yet, but we're making steady progress on it. We just started mm -hmm. working on that uh, about a year ago. And it's a lot of work. So, yeah. How does your organization actually run? I mean, I know it's a nonprofit. I know that um, you've got a staff, you're paid. How is the how how many people are involved in how many people get paid yeah. in, in Free Code Camp? How big is your staff? About I think thirty one people okay. on the staff. And so the way that it works is we're a five oh one C three tax exempt nonprofit, the same tax designation as like NPR or like the Red Cross. We have about 8,000 people around the world who donate to us each month. These people are just donating out of the kindness of their heart. Like, we don't actually wall off anything. There's no paywall anywhere. You don't even have to sign in to use free cocaine, which is kind of cool. We're very privacy-minded, and the only information we collect about you is your email address. For the purpose of authenticating, we won't even collect that if you don't want to. Like, if you're under 13, please don't create an account. Uh, you're not supposed to. Uh, but you can you can access free CoCamp. Just don't create an account if you're if you're a twelve year old listening to Lyle's podcast. <laughs> um, and then uh, basically, people go through. They use the free learning resources. Eventually, they go out and they get jobs. Some of those people that get jobs will turn around and say like, "Hey, free CoCamp has been a big help for me. I want it to help other people," and they'll donate. And sometimes those people are pretty wealthy. We're going to make some announcements about some big donations we've been getting from people who've gone out and done very well for themselves using the skills they've learned through free CoCamp. Do you take corporate donations? Yes. So we work with some corporations to get grants. So for example, Google wanted us to do a series of courses around TensorFlow, which is a popular machine learning library. For Python, there's a there's a JavaScript version as well. And uh, so we'll, we'll take a grant from those organizations and then we'll, we'll design a course from the ground up that we can publish on the free CoCamp YouTube channel. And then people will be able to learn about TensorFlow from that. Why, why does Google want that to happen? They want people to learn how to use their tool. Like TensorFlow, they, they want to advance. I think part of it is like, hey, we want to hire TensorFlow engineers. How are we going to find people that know TensorFlow? Oh, FreeCodeCamp's the way we can get this out to the masses. You know, like FreeCodeCamp has a YouTube channel with like 5 million subscribers. I think it's the biggest channel on YouTube for programming. So as a result, like... This is a way to kind of go out and get the attention of as many developers as possible. 
and and like a lot of the organizations, like we did a, a course with MongoDB, uh, for example, uh, and we did a Mern stack development, which the Mern stack is MongoDB, Express, React, and Node, and it's a popular stack that a lot of people use. So we created a course, and then uh, we showed, like among other things, we showed how to use MongoDB's backend as a service. Which is the way that MongoDB company makes money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So, so yeah. Uh, okay. these organizations benefit from just having people showing how to use their tools. And so, so they'll approach FreeCodeCamp about doing grants like that. So the primary way we're supported is through small independent donors. Secondary would be like large independent donors, which we, we haven't had like any billionaires or anybody give us money, but we have had lots of prominent alumni. Um, and then uh, the third way is the grants. Yeah. So that allows you to have enough resources to run the servers, run the tech and hire staff to actually do all the development. Now, a lot of your developments, you said transparent, actually, like all the stuff that you're doing is actually viewable by other people and people can participate like an open source project as well. That's correct. Everything's open source. It's on GitHub. Uh, BSD3 license, which is very permissive. If, if you're curious about open source license, it's the most permissive. It's like MIT. The only restriction is you can't pretend you're free code camp. We're very careful about not having people, because we have a lot of goodwill. We've spent a lot of time and energy building up our reputation. So we don't want people to, you know, create some fake boot camp and like rip people off, which unfortunately yeah. does happen. Time to time. You also facilitate, we're not going to talk about this and it's maybe lessened in the COVID years, but you also facilitate um, meetups and people seeing each other in person. Yeah. I mean, when that was safer. Before the pandemic, we had about 2000 study groups around the world where people would get together and just hang out and. Some, sometimes they would do pair programming. Sometimes they would have like a tech, tech talk thing where somebody in, the talk, somebody in the group would organize a talk on a particular technology. And, and we worked with lots of hacker spaces. We worked with lots of like local employers would, would host at their office after hours and things like that. We're hoping to get back to that. We, um, it's just not safe yet. And like I wouldn't just like with every time I think, like, okay, we're almost to the end of this. Like people are vaccinated and stuff. Like there still are a lot of people that aren't vaccinated, unfortunately. And also, um, you know, even if you are vaccinated, if you get this, it's it's pretty brutal. It's not good. Yeah. Quincy, have you thought about going to like a university for a trial run and saying, why don't you change your curriculum so you run it this way? Have you thought about kind of trying to go into that academic space? Why Why isn't the academic space more doing this? Or are universities starting to learn this is the way to teach? What, what do you think about that? A lot of university professors will recommend FreeCodeCamp as a supplementary resource for their, their learners. Um, a lot of universities have like a FreeCodeCamp club. Um, so people are using FreeCodeCamp, but it's not really designed to be, it's not like a university course. It, it is a curriculum that is for self-directed learning. And it's very different from having a class where you're going to have class projects and you're going to have colleagues. And, and it's just, I think it's too different from the, the old kind of like uh, tried and true methods of educational delivery that universities have. I mean, I don't blame them at all from, for not like grabbing it off the shelf and using it. Although some people do feel that like, oh yeah, well it's, it's a it's common sense to like take free cooking and use it. Uh, and a, a lot of like uh, coding boot camps, like training refugees, for example, in Europe, those use free code camp as their curriculum because it's free, it's open source and uh, it works. You know, it's a proven path to getting a developer job. So, yeah, a lot of like, I guess, non-university organizations do use it. I made the announcement uh, two weeks ago, I think, that FreeCodeCamp is 
planning to become an accredited four-year degree program, uh, our hope is that we can issue uh, bachelor's in computer science degrees and that wow. they'll be regionally accredited uh, by one of the big accreditation agencies. And so I'm doing a lot of groundwork. That's going to take like 10 years, optimistically, 10 years. Um, Why is that? Why is it so hard to do that? It's just quality assurance. I mean, like mm -hmm. a, a lot of things should be done slowly. That's one of the things I'm coming to appreciate. Like fast and break things does not work very well in real life. It's much better to move slowly unless there's like some urgent problem. Like obviously in a disaster situation, you want to move quickly. Every minute you're taking could be people dying, right? Uh, but in some situations, like you could say that some, to some extent, like the whole self-driving car thing, right? Like we have a slow moving disaster that's been going on for the past 70, 80 years with cars ramming into each other at high speeds, killing hundreds of thousands of Americans every year, right? But at the same time, it's worth getting that right, right? Like, like same thing with like, like before you roll out the big COVID vaccines to everybody, like let's have some clinical trials, right? Like, yes, this is a horrible catastrophe. Let's move as quickly as we can, but let's be careful about it and deliberate and safe. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the, like I often look to the aviation industry. I think the aviation industry is incredibly regulated. They're incredibly careful about everything they do. And as a result, very few people die in, in plane crashes. And I would love for a lot of that thoughtfulness and that deliberation to be ported over to education and, and software engineering and some of the fields that I'm, that I'm interested in. Uh, so, so again, I, I think it's, it's okay for it to be slow. The important thing mm -hmm. is help is on the way. Things are going to get cheaper. Things are going to get better. And we're going to do everything we can to, to make sure that they do get there. Even if it seems like relative to like, you know, X hyper growth, you know, startup or something that we're basically just standing still. I'm totally fine with people perceiving that because the reality is things are moving forward. It may seem like yeah. the at a glacial pace, but but it's better to be moving in the right direction uh, and be moving slowly than to be moving in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Quincy, thank you for doing an hour with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Lyle. It's a pleasure. It went by fast. <laughs> it did. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Of course. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Just uh, I hope everybody, if you're thinking about learning programming, you know, I was 31 years old and I, I genuinely just thought I didn't have the mind for it. I thought I suck at math, you know, all the things that people don't normally say to themselves. Just uh, it's not for everybody. I, I think a lot of people won't enjoy it, but I do believe that most people can learn this stuff if, if they want to. And it's not something that's reserved for like super geniuses. I often say like in the 1920s, everybody had to learn how to drive. Like it was just like if you wanted to be able to work it opened up tons of work opportunities, right? In in the uh, 1990s, everybody had to learn how to use spreadsheets, right? And like Microsoft Access and stuff like that, right? And email. Yeah, yeah. email. Like, and if you wanted to work in a nice knowledge worker position, you needed to know that. And I th I do believe that in, you know, around 2030, it's, it's going to be like, hey, you don't know how to do SQL queries. You don't know how to like use Linux. Like those are going to be things that are just presumed. It's going to be presumed that you know some basic Python scripting and stuff like that. So if you can get ahead of that and learn to code now, you can really get some serious gains in, in your career. Yeah. So that, that would be my closing advice is just don't be intimidated by coding. Give it a try. I'm now curious if there's a course I should take. Do you have a machine learning course? 
we have a ton of machine learning courses, actually. You do. You have a so. wide variety of different mm. topics. In terms of interactive machine learning, we don't have it yet. Uh, but if you're willing to like just watch a course and like work with like the data sets on Jupyter Notebooks and stuff, there are some some good ones up there. The other thing I'd say is like if you're just looking for a general purpose fun course, that uh, we have a relational database certification that runs right inside Docker. You don't need to worry about configuring your Linux environment or anything. Nice. Just run the Docker image, and then you can go in there, and the entire thing happens in VS Code, uh, oh, and cool. you're you're in the command line the whole time. And it's very fantastic. step by step. It's a lot of fun. What's that one? Relational database certification. Uh, I will cool. share the link. If I don't know if you want to include it in the show notes or whatever. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that, that would be okay. like if you're looking for a fun place to start. Like we're very proud of that certification, and it's a little hard. We're going to get it running on FreeCodeCamp.org. It's just the moment you have a server running, people want to mine cryptocurrency. And, you know, put all kinds of weird <laughs> stuff on the web, and so you have to be very careful the moment you like. We've got like 80 servers running or something right now. And like, we're going to need hundreds to be able to facilitate. Luckily we're working with a partner in Poland. Uh, and all they do is basically run VS code in a, in a browser. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's called code. A few of those people doing that. It's pretty, pretty cool. Very cool yeah. People. And yeah, I'm sure you, you all have some pretty good tech over at Netflix for doing stuff like that too. So. Some of it. Well, Quincy, thank you. It's a pleasure to work with you, talk with you. And so I'm so proud of what you're doing. And like, I'm so amazed by, Everything I kind of, this comes out of Free Code Camp. Not just that Free Code Camp exists, but that there's a whole community of people making it supported. Like graduates are still supporting you and making it happen. That is amazing. And I think that one of the things that I think about about that kind of leadership perspective that you've done. And if you have a few minutes, maybe that's something I want to talk yeah, to yeah, you yeah, about. Yeah, we can talk some more for what sure. Do you, what do you think about being a leader and the power over people in some sense that you? have not necessarily because you're trying but because your vision creates structures for lots of other people that's a big responsibility right yeah it's a big responsibility and it's one i take very seriously and i i just try to live in a way that i think is i mean nobody's perfect but i try my best to just be like uh very level-headed and and calm and um thoughtful in how I respond to people. That that's by the way the book that I'd like to see come out of you or the writings I'd like to see come out of you. How do you have a vision on how the world needs to be better? Create an, an organization and infuse that with people without being a dominant figure but being a supportive figure and how that works. Like that to me is because the truth is the community around what your vision was is the thing that's important, right? I mean sure your vision's important, but that a whole bunch of people got influenced we do that more and more. That's really good. Like we could, if we'd spread that skill or that capability, that improves the world really fast, I think. So I'm curious. Yeah. I, so maybe don't throw those notes away. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like my, my very quick feedback on that, like, you know, I, I've run, so I do have some managerial experience before free code camp. I, I did an MBA in China and then I also, um, I was a school director at several different schools in the U S and in China. And so I'd, I'd have like a, maybe a team of like 25 that I'd directly manage like teachers, administrators. One of the things I learned very early on is if you can figure out who actually wants to do specific types of work, everybody has kind of like their type of work they like to do. And if you can match make work that needs to be done with people who actually want to do that work, that makes it a lot easier for everybody because 
some people really like to like meet with people and 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 uh, kind of like coach them through their their studies, or some people really like to write tutorials, or if somebody really like being on the camera, and and then other people just want to like, hey, I want to maintain the servers, and I want to see if we can you know improve you know the CI/CD tools and stuff like that, right? Like, I or, or or some people really like coding stuff that's on on the front end where they can immediately have an impact with other people and some people just like doing like very minor performance improvements and they, their whole thing is like how high can we get the lighthouse score you know things like that right so uh, or how, how fast can we get the response time uh, you know how can we leverage these different CDNs stuff like that so if you if you assemble a team of people that you you have a high degree of trust in like that they they all want to see free to go camp succeed they all believe in the power of Free education, where you, where the unbanked and and the the majority of people who live on less than ten dollars a day, where they can participate in that, right? And it's not just the you know relatively wealthy people in big cities um, that are able to do this, right? Then you can just say like, hey, here's the work that needs to be done. Have at it, basically. And and that's one of the things that, about my managerial style is it's very hands off. I try not to ever delegate anything to anyone that I haven't done myself. I learned this, I think it was like my physics professor in high school or something was telling me about like the way that they did things on ships. Like the captain had cycled through every single role on the ship, whether that's swabbing the deck, whether that's cooking the food, you know, whether that's, you know, um, deploying all the sails, tying all the knots, all that stuff. So the captain was in a good position to be able to empathize with whoever was doing the work and also to be able to estimate, okay, how long should it take to do this? You know, is this sufficiently good work? If you're trying to run an organization and you don't understand some aspect of it, it's questionable as to whether you're going to be able to make good decisions. Can you actually manage somebody where where um, you don't actually understand what they're doing? I would argue that, you know, to the extent that you can develop competency in, for example, for us, like writing grants, meeting with potential stakeholders, doing support. I did free co-camp support all by myself for the first five years just to be able to really get into the minds of learners. And I answered hundreds of thousands of emails. Uh, I still answer probably about 500 emails a week from, you know, learners. It takes a lot of time, but actually I've got like a lot of systems to like automate. It's not an automated (laughs) response, but I've got like a clipboard, maybe 30 or 40 different responses. And I'll be like, Oh, it looks like this will be a good response. So there's a lot of pattern, pattern recognition when you're working at that level. But um, to, to get back to your question, just making sure that everybody feels fired up about what they're doing. And if they're not fired up about it, like, hey, what would you rather be doing? And that's the great thing is if you build a team of people you trust and if you do have the, the money coming in that you can support them. Like, for example, you know, we had somebody on, on the team who's having like an issue with mental health and they're like, I just can't do this anymore. Like, I, I need to do something. They're like, okay, great. Why don't, would you like to do this instead? So you can move people around. Uh, and that's one thing I'm, I'm very proud of is, first of all, I've never missed payroll. <laughs> like the, the three roles of, of a founder, like uh, that, like, I guess like all the VCs and everybody like quote this, but first is set the vision for the organization. Second, get the right people on, on the team. And third, don't run out of money. And like a huge more amount of my time is just making sure we don't run out of money. But I've never missed payroll and I've never had to just like say, sorry, you're, you're, we can't find any work for you. We're laying you off, right? We've never had that happen. There's always been something where like 
somebody like, oh, you speak a non-English language. Why don't you shift and focus on the localization effort for that language for a while? Or, oh, why don't you write some technical tutorials on the subject since you're really interested in it? One of our team members who's leading the Bangla, um, the Bangladesh language, they call it Bangla colloquially. I think it's actually called like Bangladesh or something like that. But uh, Bengali, I think is what they call it. Yeah, so, so he just was like, man, I really like Linux and I just really want to write a book on Linux. Like, all right, yeah, you can do that. So he wrote like a book about Arch Linux. We just published it like four or five hours ago. It's a full book on free code canvas free. So he just really loved Arch Linux and he wanted to write about it. And so I was like, all right, you know, uh, it's a luxury to be able to like have such a broad range of things that need to be done that people can just tackle these different things. And some people might argue like, well, he should really have just been focused on the Bangla localization. So that's going to help 250 million Bangla speakers around the world. Right. And so, so it's kind of like an 80, 20 approach where like 80% of the time, They've got this primary task and like 20% of the time would be like an auxiliary task that they can fall back on because everybody likes a reprieve from whatever it is they're doing all day. No, yeah, variety is nice. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I don't know if that's too much detail or like... No, it's, gr- it's great. It's totally wonderful. I'm going to double post this, I think, on both both podcasts. It's just too great to, to hear how you run, how things are going. I just love it. And I, it must have been years since we've talked when I interviewed on Geeksby the first time about yeah, pre-code. Yeah, camps. and I enjoyed interviewing you as well. Um, that was that was a blast. Yeah, I that was very cool. If we bring the the Frequent Camp podcast back at some time, we'd love to have you back on. That'd be awesome. Well, thank you so much, Quincy, for doing this to me. I'm. I think we'll do this more. Not. We won't wait so many years to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the opportunity, Lyle. You've just listened to Lunch with Lyle. Please do subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Just search for Lunch with Lyle. Today, my guest was Quincy Larson, founder and CEO of Free Code Camp. You can learn more about Free Code Camp at freecodecamp.org, or you can follow Quincy on Twitter at OSSIA. My Twitter account is Lyle, L-Y-L-E, if you'd like to hit me up with questions or comments or feedback. And if you're curious about my other podcast, Geek Speak, which we mentioned a few times, The Important Thing with Michael Lopp, or We Are Netflix, please do visit Troxel.com. That's T-R-O-X-E-L-L.com. Thanks for listening.